Hello and welcome to podcast number eight for English 264 Online. In this episode, we'll be finishing out the Romantic era and looking at two late Romantic poets, Felicia Hemans and John Keats. We'll begin with Felicia Hemans, who forms a nice contrast to Dorothy Wordsworth, the other female poet we have considered, in that while Dorothy Wordsworth never sought fame, never sought publication for her works, Felicia Hemans did. Uh, she published her first volume of poems when she was 14 years old and then published numerous volumes uh, subsequent to that. She achieved a great deal of fame as a poet during her lifetime and after. Um, a number of her poems, including uh, Casabianca and uh, the, the Homes of England, became popular recital pieces for schoolchildren for centuries afterwards. Nevertheless, her fame dwindled and she became relatively unknown as a writer until the end of the 20th century, when feminist critics, under their agenda of trying to find uh, female writers who had been forgotten and ignored over the years, rediscovered her, a renewed critical interest in her, and she has become, in the last five or ten years, a staple of new anthologies of English literature. While the, it was feminist critics who did rediscover her, it is not absolutely clear how we should interpret her works. A number of her poems, at least of the ones selected from her works and put in our anthology, seem to deliver a, a particularly traditional view of women's gender roles. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of women and fame, for instance, uh, which tends to juxtapose fame on one hand and domestic duties and love on the other. And as you can see from the, from the epigraph of that poem, Happier far than thou, with the laurel on thy brow, she that makes the humblest hearth lovely but to one on earth. The idea that what a woman really wants is not fame and fortune, um, the public acclaim for her, her work and her creative endeavors, but rather someone to love, a cozy little home, uh, little kids running around. And so this seems, as you would imagine, a, a very traditional view of what women are supposed to do. Corinne at the Capitol uh, pre presents the same idea. Uh, Propertia Rossi presents somewhat the same idea. The Homes of England tends to celebrate the domestic sphere, tends to, to celebrate the women who make the homes in England, whether it's the stately homes, the merry homes, the blessed homes, the cottage homes, whatever the social class, the assumption is that this is, is where women's place is. And then the last stanza of that, the free fair homes of England, long, long, and hut and hall, may hearts of native proof be reared to guard each hallowed wall, and green forever be thy groves, and bright the flowery sod, where first the child's glad spirit loves its country and its God. And somewhat left unsaid, its mother, the one who rears that child in that home, and creates the future of England from the nurseries of, of English homes. On the other hand, there are a number of poems by her which are more like the first one in the readings, The Wife of Asdrubal. Uh, and here you get a, a, a somewhat different view of woman, uh, of mother, of spouse. And there are, there are a number of poems like this one in, in her works. Uh, but in this one you have an historical setting from the Punic Wars where Rome was fighting against Carthage. And one particular historical moment, uh, even with an historical epigraph to set it up, where Asdrubal, the commander of, a, of Carthage, gives up the besieged city, goes over to the Roman side um, to save his own skin. And a small band of, of holdouts, a small band of survivors in the city, facing the Roman occupation, kill themselves, commit suicide. 
one member of that small band is Asdrubal's wife, who is seen at the top of the temple, in, in, uh, which is in flames, holding their two infant children and delivers a, a scathing rebuke of her husband uh, of his, his choice before she kills her children, their children, and herself. On page 408, she says, Live, traitor, live, she cries, since dear to thee, even in thy fetters can existence be. Scorned and dishonored, live with blasted name, the Roman triumph not to grace but shame. O slave and spirit, bitter be thy chain with tenfold anguish to avenge my pain. Still may the manes of thy children rise to chase calm slumber from thy wearied eyes. Still may their voices on the on the haunted air in fearful whispers tell thee to despair, till in vain remorse thy withered heart consume, scourged by relentless shadows of the tomb. Even now my sons shall die, and thou, their sire, in bondage safe shalt yet in them expire. Think'st thou I love them not? Twas thine to fly, tis mine with these to suffer and to die. Behold their fate, the arms that cannot save have been their cradle and shall be their grave. Bright in her hand the lifted dagger gleams, swift from her children's hearts the lifeblood life streams. With frantic laugh she clasps them to her breast, whose woes and passions soon shall be at rest. Lifts one appealing, frenzied glance on high, then deep midst rolling flames is lost to mortal eye. It's hard not to ask what readers were supposed to make of this figure. Was she supposed to be an heroic female, um, a or a spurned uh, lover, or a homicidal mother, um, how are we supposed to react to her act? Is it bravery? Is it murder? Is it suicide? Is it um, getting even with a spouse? Uh, we, in the newspaper, there are often accounts of one spouse or the other upon the breakup of the marriage, killing him or herself after killing the children. And normally, we don't tend to respond to that in any sort of positive way. Uh, are we supposed to do that here or not? What's fascinating about this poem is that um, it is very difficult to answer that question, uh, but it, it tends to raise w wonderful discussion questions about reception of poetry, about gender issues, about how women would have seen themselves, or whether they would have seen themselves, in Azdrubal's wife. The fact that um, Felicia Heeman's father deserted the family when she was a little girl, the fact that her, her husband deserted her family, um, certainly would seem to indicate that she's acting out of a certain degree of anger uh, or rage in, these, in, this poem, in this poem and in other poems, not in their anthology. Uh, there's one where a, a Native American woman husband has left her and she's going down a, a river in a canoe with their baby uh, heading for a, a waterfall so that she can go over the edge and kill herself and her daughter so that her daughter won't suffer from the same kind of heartbreak that she has had. Her husband has left her for another Indian woman. Or uh, there's one poem in which a, a Greek woman on her wedding day is kidnapped by pirates. Her uh, husband is killed. Her family is killed. She's taken captive by the pirates. And then she uh, sets the boat on fire, kills herself and the pirates in the blaze. You have a num number of very angry women in these poems. And one wonders how one is supposed to react to them. And I think that's one reason why she has uh, Felicia Hemans has become an interesting figure for discussion, particularly by feminist writers, but also by all writers, all critics who are interested in, the, uh, in gender roles, in attitudes, in, in assumptions about, about the time. In John Keats, we encounter a different set of issues about the haves and have-nots 
uh, in this case related not to gender but to class. Um, John Keats was from working class parents. His father owned a livery, livery stable in London. He was not the, uh, the beneficiary of the sort of formal education that uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge and Byron and Shelley all had the opportunity to have. He was not able to go to Oxford or Cambridge University uh, because of his social class. So in many ways, he is more similar to Blake in that way. And the first poem in our reading in our assignment illustrates not just how much poetry meant to him and how much he responded to it, but also raises some issues related to his background. On first looking into Chapman's Homer is a sonnet, uh, which relates his experience upon finding um, and reading Homer through a translation, through, through a particular translation by George Chapman. Keats writes, Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his kin, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Several things to notice about this poem. One, it is a sonnet. Um, there are two types of sonnets, two, two structures associated with the sonnet. One, the Italian sonnet, made famous by Petrarch. One, the English sonnet, made famous by Shakespeare. This is an example of an Italian sonnet in that it has eight lines, uh, called an octave, following the rhyme scheme ABBA, ABBA, and then a sestet, um, six lines, that have a different rhyme scheme of CD, CD, CD. Uh, and what you, what you have in many sonnets is a connection between form and content in that uh, the octave presents a particular issue, looks at it from one particular angle, and the sestet looks at it from a different angle, or in this case, it's from two. So in this poem, the octave, the first eight lines, set up the situation of what it was like for him to read Chapman's Homer and then the next six lines give two metaphors for it, give two analogies to it. He's like an astronomer who has discovered a new planet. He is like a conquistador who has discovered a new ocean. Uh, and both you get a sense of the expansiveness, of the, the opening of a new world of knowledge previously unknown to the discoverer. Uh, and as your footnotes point out, the planet Uranus had recently been discovered in 1781, um, and certainly the discoveries in the New World were still going underway at that time, although your footnotes don't happen to mention that it wasn't Cortez who actually saw the Pacific for the first time, uh, it was instead Balboa. Now, what is also of interest in this poem is that he's not reading Homer. Uh, had he had a gentleman's education, he would have been able to read Latin and Greek, um, so if, had he been Wordsworth or Coleridge or Byron or Shelley, he would have been familiar with, he would have read Homer in the original Greek as a schoolboy. He was not offered that kind of opportunity for education. And instead, he had to read him in translation, which Percy Shelley would have said would be, you're not reading him at all if you're reading him in translation. Also of interest is which translation he read. Certainly for uh, a reader in 1816, much more likely 
for most readers, would have been Pope's translation rather than Chapman's. And you, in your notes, in the companion readings to this sonnet, you have an example of the same passage translated in those two versions. So in, in Alexander Pope's 18th century translation and George Chapman's um, 17th century translation. Pope's translation is a good example of what Wordsworth, in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, argued poetry should not do. Uh, it uses the um, heroic couplets typical of the 18th century. It uses elevated diction. Uh, it tends to be wordy. Uh, the, the lines tend to have all in stop at the end. They tend to be very regular. Um, so, for example, it sounds like this. High on his helm, celestial lightnings play. His beamy shield emits a living ray. The unwearied blaze incessant stream supplies. Like the red star that fires the autumnal skies, when fresh he rears his radiant orb to sight, and bathed in ocean shoots a keener light. In contrast, Chapman uses not uh, heroic couplets, not iambic pentameter couplets, but what was known as fourteeners. Um, it's a longer line. He also tends to use more simple language, more straightforward language, less uh, stereotypically poetic language, and tends not to have punctuation at the end of his lines with the effect that you don't stop at the end of the line, but you read around. And so, uh, as Wordsworth argued that poetry and prose are, are not diametrically opposed, but what is good in poetry is identical to what is good in, in good prose, Chapman's translation goes like this. From his bright helm and shield did burn a most unwearied fire, like rich Uptumnus' golden lamp, whose brightness men admire past all other host of stars, when with his cheerful face, fresh washed in loftier ocean waves, he doth the skies in chase. Keats is saying that until he read Chapman's Homer, he had never encountered Homer. He, he never encountered the greatness of Homer because it was obscured by the 18th century ornament of uh, Pope's writing. And this, so this is not only an ascetic choice, it is also a characteristic of the Romantics' tendency to denigrate the 18th century, uh, to separate themselves from their literary past or immediate past, and to look farther back into the more distant past for their mentors, for their models, uh, Shakespeare and Homer, uh, Milton particularly prominent in their panoply of idols. On the next page in your anthology, on page 425, is another early sonnet by Keats, which demonstrates a different approach. It's an English sonnet as opposed to an Italian sonnet. And once again, the form and the content go together. The structure of this one in three quatrains and a couplet produces a very different effect. When I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books and character hold like rich garners the full-ripened grain, when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think, till love and fame to nothingness do sink. This sonnet consists of one single sentence, uh, comprising three when clauses and a then clause. So when I have fears, when I, have, when I behold, when I feel, then. So when this happens, when this happens, when this happens, then I feel this way, or then I, act, I respond in this way. 
And each of the three quatrains is constructed around a different fear. Um, he fears that he will not be able to communicate all his ideas and get them down on paper so that they will, be, uh, they will achieve some permanence. He fears he will not be able to see what the future holds, what the stars hold, uh, what destiny will occur. And he fears that he will not be able to experience love. What's different about this poem as compared to Shakespeare's sonnets, which perhaps contemplate some of the same themes of mortality, of the, um, the, the concerns about dying and, and not having accomplished everything, or the questions of the permanence of, of certain parts of human nature, Shakespeare tends to find some positive answer, either uh, something along the lines of, well, as long as we love, we have each other, and we'll, our love will last forever, or um, whenever people read this poem, my ideas will, will be immortal. Keats does not end it that way. Uh, I guess as perhaps typical of a second-generation romantic, more of a downbeat ending, as we saw with Byron and Shelley, in that it leads him to think um, that love and fame count as nothing in, in, on the, in the great scheme of things. And he stands on the edge of the world and looks over into what's beyond it. Love and fame seem little compared to what is out, what else is out there. And so a very different sort of ending is twist at the end, quite different than you would expect, say, from a Renaissance poem in England, which, which discussed the same topic. You might have encountered the same sort of twist of an ending in The Eve of St. Agnes, a narrative poem which seems on the surface to be a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, two star-crossed lovers here, Madeline and Porphyro, separated by their houses' hatred for each other, um, finding love and running off together into the dark at the end. On the surface, it seems to be a, a, a standard love, love poem, but there are a lot of dark twists in it uh, in terms of how much they really understand each other, whether they are really in love, and the ending with um, them disappearing into the mists of time, um, Angela dying, palsy twitched, and the poor beadsman ignored by all that's going on around them, the nightmares for Madeline's family, suggest that everything is not what it seems, and it might prompt you to reread it uh, with more of an ear open to the tensions and the, the conflicts raging beneath that placid romantic surface. I'd like to end this podcast in discussing the odes, uh, which are, to a large extent, the most famous work that Keats produced in his short life. In 1819, he had become dissatisfied with sonnets. Uh, he felt that they were too rigid in their construction, that they can harden thought into lifelessness. Uh, we saw in, on first reading Chapman's Homer, how form and content go together. We saw in When I Have Fears, how form and content go together. And he was concerned that this, uh, this connection could uh, keep the, the poem from coming to life. It could be too restrictive, too short. The ode is a classical form coming from the, the Greeks and Romans. Uh, it's a much freer, more extensive poem. Uh, a sonnet can only be 14 lines long. An ode is built up of, of shorter stanzas to a, a larger length. And it gave him the ability to find new spaces for words and ideas, um, new arc of, uh, of thought processes. In most of his odes, all, which were all written within a short time of each other, you see his restlessness in his mind, you see him taking up one idea after another, one, one theme after another, as he looks for perhaps some, some sense of permanence. By this point in his life, his earlier fears that he would not live a long life, 
uh, were much, much stronger. Uh, whether his tuberculosis had actually shown up yet or not, he did have very little time left after this point. And in the odes, you see him take up one theme, uh, one model, one idea. Uh, for example, in, in, in two of the most prominent of the odes, Ode on a Grecian Urn and Ode to a Nightingale, he looks for answers or consolation to the problem of human mortality, of human death. He looks in art for the urn. What does art have to say? What consolation can art give? And he looks to nature, uh, with the nightingale as the embodiment of nature. And in both of these poems, he's seeking answers to those types of questions. But also in both of the poems, by the end of the poem, he has considered and then eventually rejected the answer that art or nature gives and continues that restless search for, for answers. Ode to a Nightingale was written in a very short time, a couple of hours, as he was sitting outside listening to the song of a nightingale. We don't have nightingales in this country. But the nightingale's song sounds like this. Whenever a romantic writes about a bird, uh, whenever a poet writes about a bird, which are the poets of nature, it's important to think about what bird is chosen. Uh, and in this case, it's a nightingale, which sings at night, which is fairly uncommon for birds. So this, uh, and the, this darkness, perhaps, uh, a comfortable place for Keats, since there is such a dark thread that runs through much of his work. In this case, he is uh, listening to the bird, thinking on thoughts of death, um, has almost, at least in the poem, an out-of-body experience in which he uh, escapes from the confines of his body uh, on the bird's song and considers any number of thoughts about, um, about the end of his life, about the end of all life. He says in stanza seven, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas and fairy lands forlorn. The bird is immortal because every nightingale sings the same song. Um, the nightingale song characteristic of that species. And so whether it was heard in ancient times uh, whether it was heard by emperor or by peasant, whether it was heard in the Old Testament by Ruth in the, in the alien cornfield, whether it was heard uh, in fairyland, uh, the nightingale always sings the same song, which gives it immortality. An immortality that human individuals do not, because in humans have a, a sense of their own individuality. And the last word in that stanza, forlorn, serves as the impetus into the final concluding stanza of the, of the ode. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my sole self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is feigned to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music, do I wake or sleep? A very inconclusive conclusion to this poem, the bird flies away, and the, the poet, the speaker, is left alone wondering whether he had a vision, uh, a 
message from the great beyond, a, a moment of insight and revelation, or a waking dream, a daydream, uh, a mere waste of time, perhaps, uh, an imaginative flight, the fancy. Um, the fancy has let him down. He cannot maintain flight always, and now he is back down to earth and wonders, is he awake or is he asleep? Nature cannot give consolation forever, uh, and he has moved on, ready to move on to another place. In the next poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn, he finds a decorated urn from, in the Grecian style, whether it's a Greek urn or not, it's, it's Grecian, on which is depicted in carvings uh, various scenes of, of a, a youth chasing a, a maiden, um, it's an emblem of eternal love because she never ages, he never catches her, they never fall out of love, uh, they're always in that immediate passionate ardor. And also a community scene with priests and leading heifers to sacrifice, uh, with pipers and singers. And he concludes the poem, O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, Thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. Cold pastoral, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain, in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Now, for, for many critics, the most controversial part of this poem are the last two lines, and particularly the punctuation of the last two lines. In, in some versions published, by Keats, beauty is truth, truth, beauty are in quotation marks, and others they're not. And so there's some question about what the urn says and what, if anything, the speaker says in response. If the assumption is that the urn says the last two lines in entirety, then it seems to be that all you need to know on earth is that beauty is truth and truth is beauty. On the other hand, if all the urn says is beauty is truth, truth beauty, then there is the sense that the speaker of the poem is rejecting that in the last line and a half, saying that is all ye, need, ye know on earth, and all ye need to know, because you are merely a, a Grecian urn as opposed to a human being, and that is sufficient for an art object, but not sufficient for, for humans. I must say that I tend to favor the second reading uh, primarily because it seems to be in, uh, in characteristic of what I see of, of Keats's mind uh, in his pursuit of and eventual rejection of any uh, poetic model or any po uh, philosophical idea in his poetry and even more so in his letters. Note, for example, on page 446, his comments on Wordsworth, uh, that is the Wordsworthian or egotistical sublime as one sort of poet, who looks always within himself, who's always writing about his own ideas, his own heart, as compared or as, as contrasted to how Keats sees himself as the chameleon poet, um, somebody more like Shakespeare, uh, who seems to completely inhabit and embody any of his characters, good and bad, foolish or brilliant, male or female, who is always disappearing into his work. At least in, at that particular time in Keats's life, he seemed to be inhabiting the chameleon poet. Uh, he's, he said in other letters that he has no poetic nature himself, but he's always dissolving into whoever he happens to be reading at that moment. And also look on 445, he contrasts himself to Coleridge. He writes in this letter to his brother about a, pic about a painting he had been seeing, 
uh, of Death on a Pale Horse, and he says, It is a wonderful picture when West's age is considered, but there is nothing to be intense upon, no woman one feels mad to kiss, no face swelling into reality. The excellence of every art is its intensity, capable of making all disagreeables evaporate from their being in close relationship with beauty and truth. Examine King Lear and you will find this exemplified throughout. But in this picture, we have, amp we have unpleasantness without any momentous depth of speculation excited, in which to bury its repulsiveness. And he goes on to say, I had not a dispute, but a dis disquisition with Dilke on various subjects. Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Coleridge, for instance, would let go by a fine, isolated verisimilitude caught from the penetralium of mystery from being incapable of reigning content with half-knowledge. Keats, while a romantic, then, allies himself with Shakespeare as his model, uh, at least at this particular point in his life. In your, in your blogs for Keats and Hemans, there are a number of themes you might consider, uh, particularly the voice of both of them as outsiders who want to appropriate and fit in with the establishment uh, of the tradition. You might also look at their depiction of the past and, and, their, inhabit, and their, in, their tendency to wear uh, the masks of various characters to put on and take off particular attitudes. Finally, you might compare them to the romantics that we've seen before. As we move on from the Romantic period to the next, in the next podcast on English 264 Online. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>